In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and the man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpha, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so the woman, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she rose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she, for she had heard the fails of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with, with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, I am, for I am too old um, to have a husband. If I should say, I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more. Also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went back until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. This is the word of the Lord. Today we're going to, we're starting, uh, it's the first day of Advent as, as, as Rachel led us in lighting the candle. Um, today we're looking, we're starting this story, a story about a young Jewish couple uh, in a small, insignificant town called Bethlehem in which God orchestrates their lives and, to cause them to meet and fall in love and have a baby in extraordinary circumstances. Now, even if I say that, you might think, well, that sounds like the nativity story. That sounds like the birth of Jesus, doesn't it? But the story uh, is, is not about Jesus. Well, it is about Jesus. But these same words also apply to Boaz and Ruth. And we haven't even met Boaz yet. He'll come into the picture next week. The R book of Ruth is uh, a love story, but not in the way we normally think. It's not love, actually. Let's put it that way. It's far removed from that, the love, actually. You see, Ruth is about real love. It's about love that, one of the things that always annoyed me about that movie when I was forced to watch it was, <laughs> everyone's laughing. I don't know if you're laughing like, hi, he was forced to watch it, or yeah, you're right, you were forced to watch it. <laughs> Big Liam, fellow Balamina man. Um, 
everyone in that, everyone who loves in that story, their love is so selfish and so self-focused. But the, the love in the book of Ruth is not self-focused. It's not selfish. It's not demanding. It's not conditional. The story of Ruth is about the kind of love that's born in suffering, and that kind of love never gives up. Because the central character in the book of Ruth is not Ruth. It's not Naomi. It's not Boaz. It's not Orpah or Oprah. It's Jesus. And that's what we're going to see over the next four weeks. We're going to see that, that this story is about redemption and grace. And we see that this story is actually about the redeeming grace of Jesus. Because there is no grace without Jesus, right? Right? And so at Christmas, we're not celebrating the birth of a child. We're celebrating the birth of grace. And in Advent, we look forward to the birth of grace. So you might have noticed that the, the title of our series is Redeeming Grace, and that's a line from the carol, Silent Night. Son of God, love's pure light, radiant beams from thy holy face with the dawn of redeeming grace. And Ruth chapter 1, at the start of this story, it doesn't seem like there's much grace there, does there? Because like, it starts with tragedy, it starts with devastation, but... It ends, this, this chapter ends with the possibility of hope, like a wee, like, I don't know if you watch, I watch carefully when, uh, when, when Rachel lit the candle, there's nothing there, and it just springs into life, doesn't it? This, this something takes hold, it ignites, and that's like the hope, the hope of grace that's born at the end of, of this chapter. And that's what we celebrate as we approach Christmas, right? We, we, we celebrate the realization that there isn't really much right with the world. Right? I mean, I mean, again, again, even just looking back to, to London on Friday, there's not much right with the world, but we have hope in Jesus, and, and it begins with His birth, and it points us towards the promise of His return. And so when we ask, we, we ask, where will our help come from? How are things going to get better? God answers, your help is going to come from a Redeemer. And it was the same for Naomi and Ruth. Their, their immediate uh, re redemption or Redeemer was Boaz, who, who we'll meet next week. But even as we'll see in four weeks' time, that their ultimate Redeemer was Jesus Christ. And so as we get into the story of Ruth, we, we don't want to just jump ahead to the good bit, right? You know, whenever you're watching, I don't know, have you ever watched, of course you have, uh, It's a Wonderful Life? Well, everyone except Tim. Tim, Tim has never seen any movies. Um, it's true. Ask him about a movie. He's never seen it. Um, it's a wonderful life. We all just want to get to the end where everyone's happy. They all get their money back, and there's a party. They're all singing, and it's Christmas. We all going to get to there. We don't want to go through the suffering that poor George Bailey has to go through, but that's what we're going to do because Advent is a season of waiting. The world lay in darkness. It seemed like all hope was gone, and then hope flickers into life. And so in that spirit of anticipation, we're just going to walk through this book piece by piece. We're going to take our time every Sunday to read each chapter and read it carefully. And I hope that through Advent that you can maybe just read this book once or twice a week. It's so easy. It takes about 20 to 25 minutes to read it through on your own. Get used to the story. Meet the characters. Get to know them. Know the story so that when we come together, what we learn will, will start to make sense. And it wouldn't be great if we were all as a family, as a church family, just reading the same thing every day and every week. So I want to pray for us um, because we want to ask for God's help as we do every time we open the Bible. Um, and then we'll dig in. Father God, we thank you for your word. Um, I want to thank you for uh, these real people called Naomi and Ruth who, who lived thousands of years ago, but yet they, they, they knew you and they loved you 
And Lord, we pray that um, as we read their story and we read of their experience, that we would see the hope of Jesus, that we would see the grace of Jesus and that our lives would be changed for the better. Lord, speak to your children this morning. May we recognize our Father's voice. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so there's four, four chapters in the book of Ruth. We're going to take one chapter each week. And this chapter is about going away and coming back again, which is a pretty natural, pretty normal rhythm of life, right? So going away and coming back again, it starts when we're kids. So every day we go off to school and we come home again. Or maybe we go to play with our friends and we come home again. And then as we're adults, maybe we, we go off to university and come home again. Or we go to work every day and come home again. Or we go on holiday and come home again. Even this last week, I, I went away to the States and then I came back again. Life is this rhythm of going away and coming back again. And it's this rhythm that we see in Ruth chapter 1. But the going away and coming back again in Ruth chapter 1 is not just going on holiday, right? I mean, if it was, it would be the worst holiday ever. Um, there's something deeper going on here. And as I was reading this the last couple of weeks, I started to see Ruth chapter 1 as a play. Imagine Ruth chapter 1 as a play, and there's, then there's three acts in this play. Act 1 is departure. They leave. Act 2 is, is hope. We find hope. And, and Act 3 is the return. So that's how we're going to study it this morning, each act in turn. But there's one overarching narrative that we need to see in this. this I want us to see that is, that's here in the text that I want us to see this morning. And it's this. That hope is born out of despair. Hope is born out of despair. And this is not just the narrative of, of the book of Ruth. It's the narrative of the whole Bible. That hope comes through suffering. And our story isn't just about the suffering of Naomi and her family. It starts with a time of national suffering, right? So verse 1 tells us that, it, that, that these things took place in the time of the judges. So let me explain what that means. So maybe you're not familiar with the Bible story, so I'll go back to the beginning. So Moses, who, even if you've never been in church, you've probably heard of this guy called Moses. Moses led the people of Israel out of Egypt, where they had been slaves. They had been in slavery, national slavery, for 500 years. And Moses, called by God and, and, and with the help of God, leads his people out of Egypt, out of slavery, and God defeats the Egyptians and crushes them in the Red Sea. And at that point, they become his people, and God says, I'm going to give you, my people, a promised land to live in. And that's going to be a place of blessing, and you're going to enjoy prosperity there when you obey me, and, not, and when you live in the way that I intend for you to live, which is for your good. But things didn't go to plan. So for 40 years, they wandered in the desert because they keep they kept messing up and had to be reminded time and time again of the way God was preparing them to live in the promised land, to live in his blessing. And so eventually Joshua, who was Moses' successor, leads the people into the promised land. They cross the river Jordan into the promised land. And for a while things went okay. They obeyed God and they enjoyed prosperity. They enjoyed blessing, they enjoyed peace. But things started to go wrong because they were human like us and so our hearts are prone to wonder as we just sang. And so they kind of fell into this cycle of, of they, would, they would turn away from God, and they would mess up, and then God would, would send them discipline, and usually through the form of like um, uh, invading armies or other nations would rise up against them, and then they would realize, oh my goodness, we turned away from God, and so God would raise up a judge who would defeat their enemies, so lead the people to defeat their enemies, and they would turn back to God, and for a while they enjoyed peace again. And this cycle happened for generations and generations, but it wasn't just a kind of up and down. It was a downward spiral. They kept, uh, they, they, they kept turning their, their back on God. They forgot that, that 
God had rescued them from slavery. They forgot who they were, and they started to worship false gods, whether it was demonic powers that they worshipped or whether it was just stone or wooden idols that they created for themselves. And this is significant because God had told them way back in the beginning that when they obeyed His Word, that it would go well with them in the land that He was giving them. It was like, live in the way to intend for you, and you're going to have peace, and life is going to be good. But they weren't obeying Him, and so things weren't going well. So much so that here, there's a famine in the land. And the last, book of the, the last verse of the book of Judges, if you just flick back a page in your Bible, it says this. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Things had gotten so bad that there was no law, there was no morality. Everybody just did their own thing, right? So everybody had their own standards of right and wrong. There was very little social order. Uh, the strong oppressed the weak. It was a time of chaos, there was instability, there was child sacrifice happening, there was murder, there was rape. It was the exact opposite of what God had intended for His people, because he, he loves them and He wanted them to live in peace and bless Him. And for one woman, in the midst of all this, things were about to get worse. And this is where we enter Act 1 of our play, of our story, the departure. And I've called Act 1, Departure from God Leads to Despair. Departure from God Leads to Despair. Now, Maybe you hear that and you're like, well, hang on, why are you saying departure from God? Um, I mean, because uh, sh- there was a famine, so surely the best thing to do is Naomi and her family to leave and go and look for food. That, that's the smart thing to do. Well, there's a lot more to it than that. And when you read the Old Testament, we need to look at the symbolism that's there and, and how it points forward to things and, and things have different meanings. And the first, thing that, uh, the, first, the first thing that we see is that the land that we need to see is that the land that God gave them was a place of blessing. It was the place where God dwelled. It was a place, it was to be the place where, where, where they flourished. It was a place where they would live and show the surrounding nations what life could be like when you trust and believe in God. And if the people had repented, it still could have been that for them. They were suffering because they had abandoned God. There was a famine because they had rejected the ways of their Savior. And so instead of running away from the, the land, Elimelech and Naomi, that's a hard name to say, Elimelech, <laughs> and Naomi should have stayed in the land and trusted God. Because basically in the Old Testament, the land is a symbol of God's place of blessing, and a move away from the land is a move away from God. That's one of the key things that we see again and again with the people of Israel. Their relationship with the land is an indicator of their relationship with God, okay? So if things are going well in the land, they're usually in a good spot with God. If things are going badly in the land, they're usually in a bad spot with God. Secondly, the place they went to was not a friendly place at all, right? The, the, the people of Moab were, were, were not the friends of Israel. They were enemies. They hated each other. So the, the, the people of Moab, the land of Moab, came about from the descendants of Lot. So you might remember Abraham had a nephew called Lot. And eventually they got to the point where both their families were too big, they couldn't live together, and so they decided to go separate ways. And, and Lot went towards Sodom and Gomorrah, who, I mean, even if you're not familiar with the Bible at all, you've probably heard those words, and there was a lot of evil uh, stuff happening there. And God brings judgment against those cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And, 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 and Abraham goes down and prays to God. He's like, Lord, please rescue the city. My family are there. And eventually, God allows Abraham to bring Lot and his family out of the city before he destroys it. 
And Lot and his family are moving away back towards God, but Lot's wife looks back towards the evil and, and looks back towards God's judgment, and, and she, she dies. She's turned to a pillar of salt, which is a pretty weird thing. So what happened was Lot's daughters, they take it upon themselves. They think, well, there's no one to carry on our family. Like, our mom's gone, so we should probably, this is their thinking, they go, oh, well, we should probably get our dad drunk and sleep with our dad so that we can carry on the family line. That's what they thought. So these, these are, I mean, you can already tell there's indicators that things aren't quite right here. And so one of Lot's daughters uh, gets pregnant by her own dad and has a son, and she calls him Moab. She calls him Moab, and this is where the, the family, uh, this is where the, nation, the, the land of Moab came from. And not only had they gone to live in that land of their enemies, away from the place of God's blessing, the two sons, their two sons had married two of these women. Now, this isn't a racial thing, but they weren't supposed to marry outside of that because they were, they, they were pagans who worshipped false gods, and, and things were very, very different in the Old Testament back then. The Israelites weren't supposed to intermarry. They were supposed to remain as Israel and show, what the, show the world what, what God is like, but they did it anyway. It was another departure from God. And the third thing we need to notice in this first part of this passage is, are the names, right? Names in the Bible are significant. More than, we don't really give that much significance to our names, right? Except I like Andrew because it means prince among men, which I like to think of myself as. <laughs> well, my mommy thinks I am anyway, so. It's true, ask Gilly. So Bethlehem, right? Bethlehem is actually two words. It means house and it means bread. So, so Bethlehem is a house of bread. It literally means the place of God's provision. Bethlehem, house of bread. Elimelech means God is king, right? Uh, no relation to Kanye West. Naomi means pleasant. And their two sons, Malon means weak and Chilean means frail, probably because they were born maybe in the time of famine. They're maybe not the healthiest of babies. And you know what Moab means? Moab, again, two words, Mo meaning who, and Ab meaning father, like Abba father. It means who's your father? It means they're a, they're a nation without a God and without a father because of the way they were born into the world. And so if we listen to this story, the way that an ancient reader would have heard this story, this is what we would hear. We would hear this. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of the house of bread in Judah went to sojourn in the country of who's your father, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was, my God is king, and the name of his wife, pleasant, and the names of his two sons were weak and frail. They were Ephrathites from the house of bread in Judah. They went to the country of who is your father and remained there. But my God is king, the husband of pleasant died, and she was left with her two sons, and she was and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there for about ten years, and both weak and frail died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Do you hear, do you hear the irony in there? There was a famine in the house of bread. God as king is dead. Pleasant's husband and sons have died. Merry Christmas. <laughs> season, yeah. It's an utterly and desperate situation. And remember, for, for an ancient Hebrew woman in that culture, for her to lose her husband is, is, is awful, but to lose her sons is almost even worse because her sons were the ones who were meant to take care of her in her old age. Her sons are meant to, to provide her a heritage, to provide her grandkids. 
But they're gone too. She has nothing left to live for. If you're looking for a great book on the subject of Ruth, or the the book of Ruth, uh, Paul Miller wrote this great book called uh, The Loving Life, and he walks through uh, the, the whole book of Ruth, and it's incredible. But in this book, he says, Naomi entered into a living death. A living death. She had lost everything, and she was living in the land of her enemies. She was away from the place of God's blessing. Naomi had departed from God, and that had led her to the place of despair. And this family had left God trying to find blessing everywhere. Elimelech and Ruth were like, we'll leave God's place, and we'll go and try, try and find sustenance and, and, and fulfillment elsewhere. And even if they did find food in Moab, it didn't really work out too well for them, did it? Elimelech dies. The two sons died. They had left God to try and find satisfaction, but all they had found was death and pain and sorrow. And I wonder, how often do we do this, right? Especially in the face of hard times. How often do we look away from God to try and find satisfaction, try and find what we need? Things get difficult, so we just blame God and storm off and try and make it on our own or look to other places or, or life isn't going the way that we thought it would or that we think it should or the way that we planned it. So we, so we just give up on God and we just try to make it on our own. But we need to resist that tendency. See, God knows what he's doing. And and not just that, he loves you. He's sovereign and he is good. And he has you where he needs you to be. And so if there's famine in the house of bread, don't run off to the the land of Moab. Because you'll only find death and, and pain there. God has you where he needs you to be. And I think that sometimes when we face, uh, in, in times of hardship and bitterness, it, it can provoke different reactions, you know, towards God. But the right response is to cling to Him in the midst of suffering and trust that He has you. I remember on the, the night that my dad died when I was 19, um, there was a car accident, and uh, I remember I wasn't walking with the Lord at all. And, um, I mean, I, I, guess, I, I guess I'd become a Christian when I was a child, but there was not really much evidence of that in my life. And I remember very clearly the night that he died as a young man, and I, it, was almost, it, was almost, it was almost like a voice said to me, you can run off and do your own thing and be angry and bitter, or you can trust me, and I promise it'll be okay. That's the choice. That was a very, very clear choice in that, in that moment that I faced. And for whatever reason, well, because the Holy Spirit was working in me, I decided that I was going to trust God. And he hasn't let me down since. So can I just say, whatever it is, whatever it is that's in your life, whether it's suffering, whether it's confusion, whether it's relationships, whether it's just things aren't the way you wanted them to be, just hang in there. Because as we endure, as we keep showing up for life, even when it makes no sense, we learn to love, and we learn to love God, but, but we, we also realize that, that, that God shows up too. And more often than not, it's in these moments of despair and discomfort that we find the glimmer of hope. And that's what happens to Naomi. And this is where Act 2 of our play begins. Act 2, hope is born in the place of desperation. Hope is born in the place of desperation. See, suffering is a major theme of this passage. But out of suffering comes the promise of hope. So let me ask you, 
How do you endure through this kind of suffering? What would you do if you were Naomi? What would you do when you've lost your husband and you've lost your kids? Like, that's what this, I mean, we kind of gloss over these first few verses. We want to get to the Ruth bit and get to the, the, the redemption part. But, but this woman has lost her husband and her two sons. How do you hang in there? How do you get the power to love when you don't get any in return? How do you face living alone? And the answer is hope. And when we have hope, we can endure even when we don't know the end of the story, right? And hope comes in verse 6. Listen to what verse 6 says, and then I'll explain it. Then she arose, Naomi arose, with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Naomi heard that the Lord had visited his people. This word visited in, in the Hebrew, it means that God had attended to his people. He had cared for them. He looked after them. That's what it means. When the Lord visits someone, like, you know who else the Lord visited? Mary. The angel, the Lord visited Mary, the mother of Jesus, through the angel Gabriel. He visited her. He was caring for her. He was attending her. You know who else the Lord visited? Jesus, when he was tempted by the devil in the wilderness. The angels came and attended to him. There was once again house or food in the house of bread. God was involved. And Naomi had this hope. This hope, her, the hope was that the Lord had somehow broken through into the story of her life. This isn't hope in her human circumstances. It's not a mere kind of maybe things will turn out okay. It's not hope in finding the right place to live. It's not hope in having a lasting marriage. It's not hope in raising children and having grandchildren. Those things had failed Naomi. All the things that culture told her that, she, that would fulfill her had failed her. But she sees this hope. She has real hope, hope that goes beyond what she thinks is best for her life. And so often in our desperate situations, if we endure, if we just stop and listen for a second, if we just stop trying to make it on our own, we find that maybe God is attending to us. Maybe He is caring for us. He is providing for us. This is real hope, isn't it? The gospel. And the gospel is the good news of Jesus. The good news that Jesus was born as a baby, that he lived a human life, that he died on a cross, that he died, that he rose again from the grave, and he ascended into heaven. That's the gospel. That's real hope. That's God breaking through into the story of our lives, creating resurrection where there was only death before. And this is what's happening to Naomi. There's only death. She's in this living death. That's this is the message of Advent. The hope of Advent is the hope of God visiting his people. The hope of Advent is that, that God breaks through into our story. You see, all the things we hope in, all the things that we put our faith in, all the things that we try to find satisfaction in are ultimately going to let us down. And that's not to say, I'm not saying for a second that we shouldn't enjoy our health, we shouldn't enjoy having a good job, we shouldn't enjoy our friendships or our children or our grandchildren or our, our spouses. Of course we should enjoy those things. Those things are good gifts from God. But ultimately, none of those things last. And it's only when we hope in the Lord that we find satisfaction. Advent hope is born in the place of desperation. And listen, we're just the same as Naomi. Because before Naomi, you know what the Bible says? Before Jesus, we were just like her. We were in a living death. Ephesians 2 tells us that we were dead on our trespasses and sins. We were the living dead. We walked in darkness. We were hopeless. We were hopeless. But Isaiah tells us 
that went with the coming of Jesus, those who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Light springs from the darkness. It wasn't there before, but with the coming of Jesus, light appears. We have hope because Jesus came. And I need to say, if you're not a Christian this morning, if you've never trusted Jesus, you can have this hope too. This is hope for you. Like all the, all the failures and disappointments of your life don't have to stay that way. There's hope for you in Jesus. And, and Advent isn't just looking forward to the baby in a manger. It's looking forward to the man on the cross, isn't it? That's the ultimate point of it. Jesus loves you and he gave himself up for you. He died so that all that guilt and shame that you feel and all the, the wrong that you've done, that you know that you've done, that can all be done away with and that you can have life. And it's this hope that leads Naomi to return to the place of God. And here is when Ruth really enters the story. Naomi decides to return to the house of bread and she takes her two daughters-in-law with her. But then, before they get to Bethlehem, they stop and have this pretty awkward conversation, quite frankly. And this is what Naomi says. Naomi says, um, where are we? She says, Naomi, oh, I have it here. Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with, with the dead and with me. Notice she said, and the dead, because these two women have suffered massively too. They've lost their husbands. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voice and wept. She blesses her two daughters-in-law. She says, may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. She knows that they've suffered a lot, and she wants the Lord to be kind to them. They've experienced death and loss with her, and she wants them to find rest. She wants them to, to go and find new husbands. See, it wasn't too late for them. They were still young. They could, they could go back to Moab and they could have a future. They could find husbands and, and have children. And then they wept together. Can you imagine, can you imagine all the times that these three women wept together? Can you imagine like all the loss that they've experienced? And, and maybe it's because of that bond. The bond that they have is, is love born in suffering. Orpah and Ruth refuse. They say, Naomi, we can't leave you on your own. We're coming with you. But Naomi knows that she has nothing to offer them. So this is what she says. She says, turn back my daughters. And I love that she calls them daughters. She doesn't say daughters-in-law. These are her girls and she loves them. They're her daughters. She says, go your way for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Naomi loves her daughters so much that she's willing to be alone, even if it means that they can find life. That's a mother's love, isn't it? I, sometimes Naomi is either portrayed as just the intro to the story or this bitter old hag who's just angry. But she's not. She's a hero of the faith. And I'll tell you why. Because she loves them with the love of God, and I'll prove it to you. The word that she used in this conversation, this Hebrew word, hesed, right? You don't need to remember that, but I'll tell you what it means. Hesed means steadfast love. And even in our call to worship, in Psalm 130, how is the, Lord, the, the love of God described? It's described as hesed. The Lord heseds us. He loves us with a steadfast love. And this is the love that Naomi loves her daughters with. 
When she wants the Lord to deal kindly with them, she's saying, may the Lord has said you as you have has said it me. May, may the Lord steadfastly love you. May he be kind to you in the way that you've been kind to me. And she blesses them in God's love. And we got so much to learn from Naomi. And notice what she says. She says, listen, even if some miracle I get married tonight. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know if, how that worked. You go down to the well, or I imagine there's always a well in these places. Go down to the well, meet some guy. Hey, let's get married. And then by some bigger miracle, she gets pregnant on her wedding night. And then by some even bigger miracle, she's pregnant with twin boys. She's saying, you're going to wait 18 years until they're old enough to be married? That's too long. That doesn't make sense. I have nothing for you. I have only death. Go back to your people. And it's at this point that Orpah leaves. But look what Ruth does. Ruth it says in verse 14 that Ruth clung to her. This word clung is the same word that's used in the Bible. It's actually used of Adam and Eve, and, and it means that they became one. They were jo- and and it's, here it's not a married sense, but, but there was a joining together. She said, I am with you. I am loyal to you. We cannot be separated. And Naomi tries to convince Ruth again. He says, look, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. You should do the same. And it's in Ruth's reply that we see what's really going on here. Some of them, I mean, these are probably the most famous words in this uh, book. She says, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. This is a woman who's coming from a pagan land where they had false gods. And suddenly she invokes the name of Yahweh. She says, Yahweh, she says, your God, Yahweh, will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. See, Ruth's pledge to Naomi wasn't about Naomi. It was about God. She wasn't putting her hope in the false gods of Moab anymore. She wasn't putting her her hope in having kids or having a husband. She was hoping in God. And because of that, she was able to give up on the temporary hope of the things of life. She was able to love Naomi despite what was going on. See, Ruth had a faith that meant giving up everything for God. From a human point of view, I'd be like, man, Ruth, you should definitely have gone back. You can have a good life. And not just because, not just because she could have got married and have children, but because, remember, she's a Moab, she's a Moabite, and if she goes to Bethlehem, they're going to hate her. She will not be welcome there. That's like, it's, their, it's an enemy coming to live with them. She was a filthy Moabite. And yet she trusts God. You see, hope has awoken in Ruth. Faith has been born. And so she pledges herself to Naomi, not just Naomi, but Naomi's people. She wants to go to the place of God, and she's going to stay there. Even when Naomi dies, she's not going back to Moab. She wants to be where God is no matter what. And it's here that we see our first clue that the love story of Ruth is bigger than her relationship with Boaz. And we'll meet Boaz next week. It's even bigger than the love and spiritual bond that, that Ruth and Naomi had. The real love story behind Ruth is the story of God's love for his people. See, in a way, Ruth's commitment is a picture of the faith that we have when we follow Jesus, isn't it? We don't always know where he's going to lead us. We might not even like where he leads us, but we do know that being with him is better than the alternative. Like Ruth, we say, take the world and give me Jesus. 
And when we see Jesus feeding the 5,000 in John chapter 6, what happens? These 5,000 people are happy enough to stick around for the feast, right? But when he starts talking about the faith, they all leave. They like the feast, but not the faith. And Jesus turns to his 12 disciples and he says, lads, they've all gone. Are you not going to go too? And I, and I love this. Peter says to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter knows that the alternative to Jesus is nothing. Only Jesus brings eternal life. And, and even if he leads us through the valley of the shadow of death, we don't have to fear because he never leaves us. But Ruth's commitment, uh, Ruth's commitment is, is in a truer sense a picture of the, of the commitment that Jesus makes to us. Ruth, uh, in theological terms, we say Ruth is a type of Jesus, right? She models the love that her descendant, Jesus, will one day have for his people. Like, but like us, Ruth is imperfect. She's a sinner and she's prone to wander. But even in the face of our sin, Jesus never wanders. Even in the face of not, not being loved back, Jesus never stops loving us. Even in the face of our daily rejection of him, he never leaves or forsakes us. Isn't that incredible? God, I need, to, I need you to hear this. God the Son became the man, Jesus Christ, and was born as a human baby. And from day one, he set his face towards the cross. That's the whole, only purpose of his life. And he endured suffering. And he made this unbreakable covenant with us. And the sign of that covenant is his body broken and his blood shed. And just like Ruth, Jesus has made his commitment to the ones that he loves for better or for worse. Guys, this is our hope. This is the hope that's born in desperation. Jesus cannot and will not ever break his commitment to you, for better or for worse. And this leads us into our final act. Act three. The return. <laughs> Returning to God in repentance leads to life. Returning to God in repentance leads to life. So there's a word that appears 12 times in chapter 1 of Ruth. And anytime, remember, it's a, just a wee tip, when you're reading the Bible, anytime there's a repeated word, you want to pay attention to it because usually it's important to what's going on, okay? And this word is return. In Hebrew, it's this word shove. S-H-U-B in our English letters, shove. And shove is sometimes translated as return. It can also mean repent or restore. It's this coming back, right? And because it's repeated so many times, we get the clue that this is more than just a love story. This is, this is more than just a story about grief and loyalty, this is a story about repentance. This is a story about returning to God's grace. See, see, they had left the grace. They had left the house of bread, hadn't they? They had left the place of blessing. They had left the promised land. And repentance is, is, not, is to do a U-turn. It's not just in your thinking. It's in your actions. Repentance is not merely a conviction. Repentance actually does something. And so all that happened had led Naomi to this place where she felt God calling her to repent. All the suffering she'd endured. All, and she says it's the hand of the Lord that is against her, calling her to come back to him, to come back to his grace. And see, Naomi and her family, like we saw earlier, had not just emigrated, they had left God, hadn't they? We saw that. 
In the Bible, they are in the Old Testament, uh, leaving the garden or leaving the promised land is leaving God, like we saw. Uh, anytime in the Old Testament someone travels east, that's moving away from God. That's a symbol. And they had, moved, they had gone from Canaan eastward towards Moab. And that's a symbol we see in the Bible of moving away from God. So just like Adam and Eve, how did they leave the Garden of Eden? They, it says that they, they went eastward. To move eastward is to move away from God. That's a symbol in the Old Testament. And Naomi and her family had moved eastward from the promised land to the land of Moab, the godless land of Moab. And what's interesting is that when we read the start of the story, we read at first that they had just sojourned there. They were just tourists. They had gone as strangers to check things out and see if they could find a bite to eat. Maybe more than a bite. They wanted to find satisfaction. But then the sojourning, the touring in verse 1, turned into remaining there in verse 2. And by the time we get to verse 4, we see that they've stayed there 10 years. And, and I know it's Advent, but this is in the text. I need to say this. This is so often how we journey away from God, isn't it? This is, so how, how, this is how we end up living in sin. See, for example, not many people, not many people go out with the intention of having an affair or cheating on their spouse. That's not how it happens. How does it happen? Maybe it starts with somebody at work giving you a bit of attention, right? And you like it because maybe it's been a while since you've had that kind of attention at home. And, and maybe that progresses to a bit of flirting with that person. And all the while you're thinking, well, this is harmless. Like, nobody's getting hurt but it doesn't stay that way. Gradually, little by little, you end up going down that path deeper and deeper and deeper into sin. And it's a slow decline that we need to be careful of as we walk with Jesus. This is why Proverbs 4 tells us that we need to guard our hearts. And why Jeremiah 17 tells us that our hearts are deceitful above all things. And so we need to be on the lookout in our lives for the little things we compromise on, those little compromises we make. Maybe it's the, just one little lie that we tell to, to cover our tracks, to cover up that text message we sent or, or that website we visited. You know, you might say, oh, I mean, just one, one look at pornography. I mean, I mean that'll be it. I'll be, I'll be done. Like this one time and I promise that's it. But it never stays that way. If we're not careful, we can just end up in deeply sinful habits. And this is the realization that Naomi comes to through her suffering. She realizes that a life away from God is no life at all. Had the Lord helped, dealt harshly with her? Yes. The Lord's discipline on his daughter was severe because he loved her, and ultimately because it was through her family that the Messiah would come, and he wanted to bring her back. And so she repents. She's so aware of the, what happened to her that when she gets back to Bethlehem, all her friends uh, are there and they're like, Naomi, is that really you? I can imagine she has a few more gray hairs and maybe a few more lines and, and all that kind of stuff. But she says, don't call me pleasant anymore. Call me better because the Lord has dealt with me bitterly. I'm not pleasant. I'm better. But Naomi, anyway, she realized that she needs to return to the place to, the, to where the grace of God is. And so she goes back, she finds grace and provision, and we'll see that starting next week. But here's the thing. If you're far from God today, maybe you need to turn back, right? You need to return. Maybe you've stopped paying attention to all the ways that, that God is trying to call you back to himself. Maybe you're caught up in your own misery and bitterness, like Naomi's bitterness, that you, you're ignoring the fact that he loves you. And that he wants you to prosper. And he wants you to know him. 
See, in rebellion, what we're doing is we're trying to write our own story, but in repentance, we stop trying to create our own story and submit to the story that God is weaving for us. And when we do that, we realize that's far better and it's for our good. Because when we repent, when we come back to the place of grace, you know what we find? We find mercy. We find forgiveness. We find grace. Psalm 103 tells that the Lord is gracious and compassionate, that He's slow to anger, and He's rich in said. He's rich in steadfast love. And I love what Psalm 23 says. We're probably all familiar. There's a line that says, the Lord restores my soul. And you know what that word restore is? It's His head. So when Naomi returns to the Lord, the Lord restores her soul. Naomi, Naomi has said to the Lord, and the Lord has said her. I love that. When we return to the Lord, we don't find anger and condemnation. We find restoration. God calls us back to himself time and time again because he loves us. And through the rest of the story, we see that Naomi finds restoration. And I love that this wee clue that we get to this, and I'm done, in the last verse of chapter 1. Remember what it says? It says, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. <laughs> Hope has dawned. The candle has been lit. Salvation is coming. There will soon be, once again, bread in the house of bread. They've returned at the time of harvest. Naomi's been, been to hell and back, hasn't she? She's literally been to hell, like away from God. She's left God's presence. And as soon as she returns to God, she finds hope. Provision is coming. Her suffering will soon be over. And this is the hope that we have in Advent, guys. Not, not in the same way in our, as our brothers and sisters in the Old Testament. And they were hoping for the, for the coming of the Messiah. But we have this sure, dependable hope. We have a sure and future. We have a sure hope that, that, that our suffering will come to an end. Advent is this season of waiting, a season of anticipation, and an, a season of quiet hope being born in desperation. Maybe you, maybe you look around the world and you see desperation, but hope comes in the middle of desperation. And these people in the Old Testament, they, they always say over and over again, how long, O Lord? And so it's at this time of year that we enter into this expectation, ex expectancy and we join with them and we we look back so that we can look forward we look back to the bread and the wine we look back to the cross of jesus and that's our guarantee that he will come our savior is coming he is coming and we wait for it and we wait for and anticipate the day when jesus will come and this time he's not going to be unrecognizable. This time he's not going to be a screaming baby born in a cow shed. This time he's going to come in all his glory and there's not one person that will not recognize him for who he is. He's going to put an end to all evil. He's going to put an end to all suffering. He's going to put an end to all in Jesus. But for now we wait. Let me pray for us.